Uh, hi, good morning. Uh, welcome to Regen. My name is Kyle, and I get to be the pastor here, so uh, I'm just really glad that you're here in the space with us this morning. Thanks for giving us a part of your Sunday. Uh, I really hope that in what we sing and what we pray, um, what we're going to talk about in Scripture together today, um, even in taking communion later in the service, the conversations that happen after, um, God, I pray that, uh, God, I pray, I pray that God, okay, hi, long night last night. Uh, I pray that God uh, would just really interrupt your life. That's really our passion at Regen is to interrupt people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus. And we do that in a ton of different ways uh, throughout the week. One of the ways that we uh, do that on Sunday mornings is we interrupt people's lives with generosity. So if you have a smartphone, you can pull it out and check in on Facebook. If you use the hashtag RegenGives, we will make a micro donation on your behalf uh, this month to... My wife usually does the announcements and she's not here yet this morning. Um, we, we are getting A21, which is an organization that is ending slavery globally. So if you check in, we'll make a donation to you and just use that hashtag regiongives. Uh, that's a way that we interrupt people's lives with the generosity of Jesus. Um, I'm going to look at this because I don't really know what else is going on because I just work here. Okay. Um, a couple events coming up on March 4th, once a month, we open up our home to everybody in our community in what we call a feast night. Everybody just brings food and we hang out and it's usually really good. And this uh, month or next weekend, actually, March 4th is breakfast. And so it is all breakfast food. Um, Rebecca Anderson is making crepes. Um, there's going to be waffles. There's going to be breakfast pizza. Um, if you want to know more about that, if you fill out one of the hay cards at the back of the room, um, that'll get you on our email list and it'll let you know about all of those details. And by the way, if you happen to be a guest in the house this morning, welcome here. We want to interrupt your life with some love and grace. And there is a mug and some stuff for you at that back table on your way out. It says, hello. Just that's our way of saying, we think you're pretty neat. Um, we think you're neat. Um, that's the one thing. Mark 18th is one of our Discover events. Discover events just kind of help us discover community, discover a little bit more about what Regen is. Uh, the one in March is called Discover Your Gifts because we believe that God has wired each one of us with gifts to serve and love and interrupt each other's lives with the love and grace of Jesus. And so we'll have lunch, we'll have pizza, and we'll uh, talk about the five gifts that God gives his church and that's how that he makes that real in our lives. And then the last thing, every month we do a one thing. Whew. Guys, all right, every month we do a one thing. We're getting busy, eh? Um, uh, we're doing an egg hunt, and we're trying this for the first time. Um, Kate and Steph and Lindsay are kind of putting this together for kids. It'll be the uh, Saturday before Palm Sunday. There will be a portion of the egg hunt, which we are saying is glow in the dark, but will actually be under black light. So that long hallway will black out, and it'll be a black light egg hunt. Um, and then we're going to do, I think, uh, other parts of it elsewhere on the property. And then the next day on Palm Sunday, Rodeo the Donkey will be here after church for us to take pictures with. Guys, I didn't know that donkeys could be so precious until I met Rodeo, and he is the cutest thing. Um, and you can dig around on my Instagram and find pictures of him, so he'll be here the Sunday after. And then Easter is April, Fool April Fool's Day, April 1st. Easter's no joke. That'll be 11.15 right here, and we'll be getting all that info um, out to you. But here's, here's one of the things that I keep saying out loud to our staff. One of the things I keep saying out loud to everybody in our community is we're not trying to be busy. 
We're trying to really be on mission with Jesus, interrupting people's lives with his love and grace. And so um, what we're really trying to do is be intentional with what we're doing to show our community that we love them, to show our community that we care for them, and for us to grow together as disciples or apprentices of Jesus. And so that's what's happening there. Speaking of interruptions, Zoe Byler is in the house, um, the tiniest little regener there ever was. Um, so she's uh, coming in now. Uh, I'm going to uh, invite Aaron up, actually, to come and pray for our giving, um, which we include in the service on a regular basis. And uh, yeah, he can take it from there. Awesome. We're going to pass these buckets around. Someone is. Um, but if you just want to bow your heads and pray with me. Um, God, we thank you so much for the privilege um, of coming before you and honoring you with our worship and with our giving, which is really just a form of worship. Um, I'm, I'm struck this morning by um, the grace afforded us to do that, by the grace that we can come before you boldly. God, I just ask that you would find our offering and our worship pleasing to you, that um, we can use these gifts to make you better known, just ask for everyone in here that you would impact them during the worship, that as we reflect your nature back to you, um, that you would speak to us about who you are and who we are. Amen. God, we're here this morning and we um, just offer you our lives. Um, we know that um, you and you alone have the words that we need to hear today. And so, Father, um, would you come into this place and would you speak to us? God, would you teach us what it is to hear your voice? Would you teach us what your voice sounds like? Would you teach us what its tone and timber and, and its phrasing and the words you would use? God, because you alone have the words of eternal life. So speak what is true to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, kids can go back with Miss Caitlin. Caitlin is our kids director, and that's the Regen Rangers. So you guys can go back there. That'll be fun. Um, the stampede has gone by. There's, they sing. They learn. It's good stuff. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, Revelation 2 this morning. Um, hey, if I could invite you this week to be praying for a lot of you know... Um, a lot of you know that um, uh, we have a close relationship with McGuffey K through eight, pre K through eight, which is a Warren City school. We have a campus in the city on the northwest side, and um, I'll reach a lot of kids there. And this week, um, two of their students, a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, were killed in a fatal accident on 7-Eleven. And there's actually a little girl at Grace Campus who's five in kindergarten, and it was one of her classmates that passed away. And so um, I'm going to the school, I think, Tuesday morning. Um, and uh, one of the things we kind of talk a lot about is um, when you're following Jesus and when you're in the kingdom, you remember that part of Talladega Nights where Ricky Bobby is looking at the camera and he is it being interviewed and he's doing this awkward and he goes, I don't know what to do with my hands, right? Um, I don't know what to do. And he's like, and that, that is what discipleship feels like a lot of the time is, and following Jesus, I don't know what to do with my hands, 
Um, and so when the principal reached out last night and said, would you come on 7.30 at Tuesday morning and pray with our faculty and our staff, I thought, immediately thought, I don't know what to do with my hands. Um, I went to a house on Monday morning. A woman passed away unexpectedly at Grace Campus, and they asked me to come to the house. Um, and her, she was still at the house. Her body was still there. The family was just grappling with it. They're weeping. I'm thinking, I have no idea what to do with my hands. And uh, so if you feel that way, you're in good company because we never know what to do with our hands ever. <laughs> and uh, that's why we spend time in scripture and in relationships and Bible studies because it's teaching us what to do with our hands. Um, and which at least hopefully will not be this, you know? Um, so some of the guys I'm discipling, they'll look at me and they'll go like, and I'm like, yeah, I know, I don't know either. So we're gonna be in Revelation 2, Revelation 2, but um, pray for the, the students. Their la- the students' last name were Basin, um, Narayan, and Nyalesha Basin, the students at McGuffey. Um, yeah, and I don't know if you know who this is, but Billy Graham died this week. And those of you that are maybe new to Jesus, like that's a random name, but Billy Graham literally preached to like millions of people over his lifetime. And uh, like my father-in-law uh, came to know Jesus because there was a Billy Graham movie on the television. Um, and so that's how my wife was kind of raised to be the woman she is and why we have the marriage we do. So that was pretty cool too. And um, somebody said to me, can you imagine spending your life telling millions of people about Jesus and then seeing him? And I guarantee you for Billy, it was not disappointing. It was more than he imagined. So Revelation 2, Revelation 2, we're looking at the letter to the church in Pergamum. Remember, do you remember we had those folders um, when we were growing up and they were like these 3D things and you get posters. It was a very 90s thing. And if you stared at it and relaxed your eyes, there was another in it. Do you know what I'm talking about? So there was this like image of a, like, I don't know, whatever it was, but then if you relaxed your eyes, you could see it. I had a folder when I was in like first or second grade, and if you relaxed your eyes, there was a dolphin coming out of the water. And the reason that was exciting to me is when I was growing up, I wanted to be a marine biologist so that I could be a Shamu trainer. Um, It turns out I'm in a safer profession as a pastor because like Shamu now pins the trainers to the bottom of the tank. Um, If you've watched that movie Blackfish, your heart has been ruined. If you've not seen it, just don't watch it because then you can still live in a in, in, in ignorance and bliss. It's beautiful. Um, I, so the reason I was thinking about that this morning was because that's really what the book of Revelation is all about. It's about what you're seeing is not all there is to see. It's about there is more to things than they seem. There's something under reality that is truer and deeper, and that reality is Jesus in the center of history. And so John, uh, who's the beloved disciple of Jesus, his best friend, writes this book called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Does it have an S on the end of it? No. Be smart at dinner parties and on Jeopardy. It is not the revelations of Jesus Christ. It is the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And revelation is a simple word. It means unveiling or uncovering. And so John is uncovering Jesus's presence in the midst of the life of seven churches facing very unique circumstances. There's seven churches in what we now know as Turkey. Back then it was called Asia. But that number seven for John does not just mean a literal number seven. It means a figurative seven. It's a number of perfection. And so every one of these letters is written really to every church everywhere at all time. This letter wasn't written to us, we might say. It was written for us. And this letter that is written for us, but that was written to the church, it's written to a church in a place called Pergamum 
or Pergamos, and it is found in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. And if you want to grab a Bible, it's the last book of the Bible. It should be easy to find. Um, There's paperback ones under the seats, and if you don't have a Bible of your own, that's a gift to you. But um, verse 12 says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You have refused to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone who with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone. And on that stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. In and out. I just wonder if I should just use one of the others. Okay. Wardrobe change. Here we go. Um, I'm going to be Joey. Okay. That's just going to hang awkwardly off my back. I'm going to take my wedding ring off because it clicks. Okay. So Pergamum lies 70 miles north and 15 miles. In, 15 miles inland, 15 miles inland. I don't know, like, does Satan hate the technology? Like, what the deal is? But um, it lies 70 miles north of Smyrna, which was the city we looked at last week. Pergamum, this is a picture of Pergamum. Can you throw that up for me, Dan? Um, Pergamum was an interesting city. So that at the top of that hill what was, is what was called a citadel. And it was a military fortress on the top of a hill. And beneath that was the city the city of Pergamum, and and Pergamum uh, kind of was ransacked a few times, and then by the time John is writing this letter, begins to have a greater meaning, begins to um, have a bigger play in in Asia, and one of the ways it had play was there was this guy named Eumenes II who went to Pergamum and discovered this thing where you could take animal skins and stretch it really thin, and when you did that and scraped it, um, what would happen was you could write on it. It was called parchment. And so Pergamum quickly became like the office max of the first century, where you went if you needed paper. And because parchment was being made, because that was one of its major industries, it became a center of academia and learning. It was a very progressive city, but at the same time, a very spiritual and religious city. It was the capital of emperor worship in Asia. And this is where, if you were with us last week, I misspoke. What I said last week was that Smyrna was the first city to build a temple to the emperor. I was wrong. They were the first city to build a temple to, um, to the Senate and to an empress. Uh, and they had built four temples in Smyrna over their history because emperor worship in the city of Smyrna was how you got connected. It was like country club religion. It was how you gained social standing. But in Pergamum, the city we're at, they were the first city in Asia to actually build a temple to the emperor because they really found emperor worship not to be a social thing, but to be a religious and spiritual thing. 
And just to be clear, emperor worship was a common practice in the Roman Empire, and in fact, it was compulsory on Roman citizens to participate in it. And even if you weren't a Roman citizen and you were living in the Roman Empire, it was smart to participate in that because, yes, you gain social standing, but in Pergamum, they really believe what they're doing. The, the empire created emperor worship partially to unify the empire. I mean, the Roman Empire encapsulates a number of different people groups, a number of different religions, a number of different ethnicities, and the Roman practice was you can worship whatever god you want to as long as you also worship the emperor. And in a polytheistic society, everybody was good with that, except for Jews and Christians who said that there is one god. Except for Jews and Christians whose singular claim was that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not Caesar, not Nero, not Domitian, but that Jesus is Lord. This is why there was that that back and forth, that butting up against one another, that persecution. I mean, people in Pergamum, when they went to the temple and they worshipped the emperor, they burnt incense and made sacrifices, they really believed that that was going to bring good fortune on them that it would bring good fortune on the empire, that it would bring good fortune on them. And, and, and if they wanted to cover their other bases, Pergamum was a religious hotbed. Uh, there were temples to a number of other gods that we all learned about in sixth grade, um, including Zeus and Athena and Dionysus and Asclepios, who is the god of healing. And actually that symbol of healing that is like the staff of Hermes with the snake around it, the snake is the symbol of Asclepios. Um, and, and so this, this city was also then a city where you went to get healed and get better. And, and, and so in this religious hotbed, in this progressive, learned, spiritual, religious city, John writes a letter, and it begins this way. He says, write a letter to the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. He says, I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan City. The spiritual atmosphere, Jesus says, it's not just eclectic. It's not a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's satanic. This is the city where Satan has its throne. Listen, Satan was throwing people into prison in Smyrna, but this is Satan's HQ. The city of Pergamum, because of the hotbed of emperor worship, because of all of the other gods that were worshipped in that city, this was the place that was Satan's HQ. I mean, John wants this church to understand that they are not just like in enemy territory. They are behind enemy lines. They are behind enemy lines. And and John wants this church to know that the spiritual climate, the spiritual atmosphere of the city of Pergamum is dangerous and toxic and life-threatening, not only spiritually but bodily. I mean, Antipas, who's this noted Christian, is martyred for his faith in this city. But it is toxic and life-threatening ultimately to the spiritual life and well-being of this community, which is why he says, this is Satan's city. You guys need to be careful. But the problem is for the church in Pergamum, it wasn't just a toxic environment. The toxin had gotten into their system. It had infiltrated them. So look at verses 14 and 15. It says, I have a few complaints against you. Now, in almost every later letter, Jesus offers a complaint. And in this one, he does. He says, I have this complaint against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. That, that line literally means to throw a stumbling block. Imagine somebody running and you throw something to trip them up. He's throwing stumbling blocks at the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. 
Repent, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I mean, this toxic climate of Pergamum has, a, has infiltrated the church, and the, and, and the church has welcomed false teaching and heresy to infiltrate their community. And John describes this as the teaching of Balaam. If you want to read a really interesting Old Testament story, go look at Numbers 23, 24, and 25 tonight. Uh, Balaam uh, leads, kind of leads the people astray, but there's a talking donkey, which is super interesting. Um, God speaks through a donkey, so if he can speak through a donkey, he can probably use you too. It's kind of the joke, right? Um, but there's this also part where a guy named Phineas, when people are engaging in some sexual activity that is outside the bounds, he takes a tent stake, tent stake and rams it through both of them. The Old Testament, rated PG-13 for violence and language. Um, and, 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 and John says these Nicolaitans, these people that are false teachers that are infiltrating the church, they are teachers like Balaam, because Balaam becomes kind of a biblical catchword for false teachers, especially false teachers who are trying to extort God's people for money, a.k.a. late-night TV preachers, right? They have the spirit of Balaam, that they are trying to use, get financial gain and influencing God's people into ungodly practices. Those are the Balaams, and these false teachers in the tradition of Balaam have coaxed and caused the church in Pergamum to stumble into sin, namely sexual sin and, and eating food offered to idols. Now, um, sexual sin is actually a pretty big deal in scripture. It's a pretty big deal in these letters. The church of Pergamum and Thyatira are, have received complaints about their sexual activity, which is why next week, FYI, we are going to talk about sex in church. And so if that makes you uncomfortable, it's a great weekend to be gone. Um, if you, I mean, parents maybe kind of plan ahead with your kids and stuff, but, um, the other piece is that, like, if you have a problem with talking about sex in church, like, then you have a problem with scripture and the guy who wrote it. So talk to Jesus. I think that will be the second time in the history of our church that we've talked about sex for as long as we will. There will be pictures. There will be, no, I'm just kidding. Um, it'll be like sex ed at school, right? Like where the, you know, and then this will happen, right? Um, so there's that. But this, this, the sexual sin and the eating food offered to idols are ultimately symptoms in John's mind for a deeper sickness that has infiltrated the church, and the deeper sickness is idolatry. That the people of Pergamum are engaging in worship of other gods, and that worship is leading them to these behaviors. Idolatry is a big concern for John in these letters. It's a big concern throughout Scripture, but it's a concern that we do not feel too in touch with. Because you're not going to leave today and go to the temple of Zeus this afternoon. And at this point in history, that's what idolatry is. Idolatry is explicit. Idolatry is explicit. So you went to the temple of another god. You went to Zeus's temple in Pergamum, and you would participate in rites and rituals to please that god. You would burn incense. You would make a sacrifice. You might cut yourself. Um, it usually did involve sexual practices. But all of this is with the goal. When you went to any temple, and this is true of every pagan religion, every non-Christian religion, it's that we make these sacrifices and engage in these behaviors to kind of coax and even purchase that God's attention and action in our lives. And so gods and paganism are usually mean. They're disinterested in our lives. And so you need to do all of this stuff to kind of get them to pay attention to you. They're fickle. They're inconsistent. And, and, and so here's the thing, though. In our day, idolatry is just as common. It's just implicit. 
And that's actually what makes it harder, right? Idolatry is easier to diagnose if I catch you walking into the temple of Zeus. It is harder to diagnose and speak about idolatry because our idolatry is hidden in our hearts. It is hidden in our actions. It is hidden in our decisions and our attitudes. It is revealed in how we spend our time. It is revealed in how we spend our money. It is, it is, revealed, in, it is revealed in how we worry. Worry and prayer are the same actions. It's just in what direction are you doing it? So back then, you worshipped an idol to get good crops. You worshipped an idol to get good money or fertility or safety and security. And you worshipped an idol to appease and please a god to get that god to give you something, to endeavor on your behalf. So you worshipped Jesus, but then you also worshipped Artemis, the goddess of fertility, because even though like you knew God was in control, he's not really giving you as many kids as you want fast enough. So I'm going to worship Artemis too just to hedge my bets. You know, I really, really need to have like a good crop year, so I'm going to worship Jesus, but I'm also going to go and burn some sacrifices in the temple of Ceres because I just want to make sure that I've got, my, I've got my bases covered. And this is why Jesus, this is why Jesus hates idolatry. And he hates it. Jesus is not afraid of the word hate. The Old Testament says that God, go read the Old Testament. Do you know what it says? It says God hates sinners. He also loves them. He's very complex. He hates idolatry because at its core, it represents a fundamental misunderstanding of his character. Because when we worship another idol to hedge our bets, when we worship another idol to cover our bases, it reveals that we really don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. It reveals that we don't believe he'll do what he says he'll do. It it reveals that we don't believe that Jesus is handling it. And so we have these needs. We have legitimate needs. And by the way, idolatry is meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. And And in doing this, what we're doing is hedging our bets and covering our bases because we have these needs in our life that we don't believe Jesus is handling, so we go to idols to get it taken care of. And listen, we may no longer be going to temples and seeking a good harvest We may not be praying to a God of healing to cure our diseases. We may not be praying to the God of the marketplace to to make sure we have a good financial year. But we do want to get married. We do want kids. We do want connection. We do want financial security. We do want safety and comfort. We do want pleasure. We do want success. We do want to be impressive. And, and, And just like the church in Pergamum, we're not sure that Jesus wants those things for us as much as we want them. Just like the church in Pergamum, we're not sure that Jesus wants them for us as much as we want them. And so we dress and look and act a certain way to be perceived as successful. We work hard. We pinch every penny. We date all the wrong people. We cross all the sexual lines we know we shouldn't cross. We start micromanaging our kids every move. We start using our money for ourselves and for our comfort and for our pleasure. And there may be no temple and there may be no altar, but I'll tell you what, you're still making sacrifices. You're sacrificing authenticity. You're sacrificing generosity. You're sacrificing time with your family. You're sacrificing your purity and your heart. And if you're dating the wrong person, you are sacrificing your very future. You're sacrificing a healthy relationship with your kids. You're sacrificing living in the present because you're building up this wall of comfort and complacency in your happy place. And guys, I'll tell you what, the the desires in the church of Pergamum are no different than the desires that exist in your heart and my heart right now. They're no different. 2,000 years later, same thing. 
and, and the word that scripture uses to express how we get those desires through idolatry is the same then it is as now. The word is worship. The word is worship. The word is worship. And it doesn't matter that there's not a God or a temple or a shrine. It's just as dangerous and toxic to our relationship. This is why Tim Keller um, says this. He says, anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give only what God can give you is an idol. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. If I have that, then I'll know I'll have value. If I have that, then I'll feel significant and secure. And there are many ways, Tim Keller says, to define that kind of relationship, but the best one is worship. He goes on to say this. He says, every person, religious or not, is worshiping something. Every person, religious or not, is worshiping something. We're worshiping idols and and fake saviors to get our worth. He says, but these things enslave us with guilt if we fail to attain them, or anger if someone blocks them from us, or guilt, or I mean, excuse me, or fear if they're threatened, or drivenness since we must have them. Guilt, anger, fear, and drivenness are like fire that will destroy us. Sin is worshiping anything but Jesus, and the wages of sin, he says, is always slavery. So that's why he hates idols. That's why Jesus hates idols, because it's enslaving ourselves to something which is why we have to pay attention to our guilt and our anger and our fear. When, when your guilt haunts you, when your anger surprises you with its intensity, when, when your anxiety rises up, when it won't let you go, and when you cannot stop striving for something, that is a sign that you have an idol. So, so three principles on idolatry, which is in your life and mine. A few principles. First is that your life is never absent of an idol. You always have a side piece, at least one. Martin Luther said, our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts pump out idols like like the plant in Lordstown pumps out cruises. I mean, just one after the other. And you might hear this and say, I don't know if I have an idol in my life right now. You might say, I don't know if I have an idol in my life right now. But I would say again, look twice, look a third time, pay attention to your anxiety, your guilt, pay attention to your anger and your drivenness. Pay attention to what you're seeking after. Pay attention to what, and I guarantee you, you're going to find, and maybe it doesn't control you as much as it controls the next guy or gal, but the reality is there's an idol in your life. You have a side piece. That's the first thing. So there's always got to be this inventory. Again, this is why this is so hard, right? Because I can't find your idol by looking at your GPS. I can't see what temples you're going to. I have to look at your heart. I have to look at your, how you're spending your money and your time and your energy, right? It's much trickier. It's much trickier. So the first thing is your life is never absent of idols. The second thing, and this is something Joe Saxton said at our IF gathering, one of the speakers at that women's conference um, that we put on, like said this out of the park statement. She said, in the middle, in the middle, your ideals become your idols. In the middle, your ideals become your idols. Because here's the hard thing about idolatry. It's often good things. It's almost always good things. It's marriage and connection and family and babies and financial freedom and fun. And when you're in the middle and you don't have what you want and you're praying for it, when you're in the middle, it is very easy to make your ideal your idol. Ideal, I-D-E-A-L, I-D-O-L, make your ideal your idol. Because when you're in between the divorce and the remarriage, when you're in between the dating and the marriage, when you're in between, when you're in between one phase in your kid's life and the next, when, when, you're, when you're in between retirement from your job and, for lack of a better word, eternal retirement, 
um, aka death, it is easy for those ideals that govern that to become your idol. It is easy for your kids' grades to become an idol. It is easy for your comfort to become an idol. It is easy for financial freedom to become an idol. It is easy for insert the blank. It is easy for connection and the date and the marriage to become an idol. And, and here's what I've been wondering all week. I've been wondering if, if the, the idol's allure and, and interest is at its highest when the middle is about to become the end. I've been wondering if, like, if your allure for the idol, like, if, if when it gets really strong, if that's when the middle is again about to be become the end. Right, like, so you're, you're really working for financial freedom and you're paying off the debt and all this kind of stuff, and then there's, like, this boat that you want to buy. Right? And you just have cleared off all your credit cards enough that together you could put it all in the credit cards again. And you're just this close, and the boat never looked that good. You know what I'm saying? I'm talking about, like, you have, like, been waiting patiently in singleness, and you've done well in that, and then all of a sudden, there he is. And he looks like whoever is hot. <laughs> um, and, and here's the thing, like, you're just almost there. Like, you, the breakthrough was like, oh, right there. And you pressed abort because you went for the idol instead. When you're in the middle, your ideals, and guys, we're always in the middle. Fun fact, the only person who is no longer in the middle that I know of right now is Billy Graham. Everybody else, we're just in the middle. So, in the middle, your ideals become your idols. Finally, idols are at best a distraction, at worst destruction. At best, they're a distraction. I, I watch, watch the Olympic speed skating. It's actually a sport I think I could do. Let me tell you why. It has nothing to do with my effort and everything to do with the aerodynamics of my, my suit thing, right? Right, and the helmet. It's just about how can we get the air to glide over my, my body. You can, you can be fat, you can be thin, you can be whatever. You just got to skate in a circle, right? And uh, here's, here's the rookie mistake, though. What's the rookie mistake that puts a person in first into the last? They turn around and look where the other people are. Right, and, the, and, their, and their aerodynamics are all out of whack, and they turn around, and then they collide into somebody, and then the Korean guy swings around, and bam, they win, right? And, um, and here's the deal. That's how idols want to distract us. They just want us to look away for a minute, because when we look away, we'll no longer be in the place that God wants us to be. Like, we'll look away. I mean, and it, just for a hot second. They do it in Olympic swimming, too. I was taught this when I swam. It, it's the only athletic thing I ever did for the tiniest bit of season of my whole life. Um, but... But when you look to see where the person in the next lane is, you lose everything. You have to just keep your eyes on where you're supposed to be going. And when we look away for just a second, you lose all that ground. At best, idols distract us from being in the place where God wants us. At worst, they're going to destroy us. At worst, an idol left in your life is going to rip your life to shreds. It's going to kill your marriage. It's going to kill your kids. You know, it's super funny. I heard somebody preaching on idolatry, and they said, babies always, like kids always die in idolatry. Kids are always the one to take the brunt of it. When a parent's idol is work, kids get sacrificed. When a parent's idol is money, they get sacrificed. When it's having perfect kids, the kids that they have get sacrificed. Kids are always the one that take it. And here's the interesting thing. So I want to talk about what does Jesus think and how do we join him in this. God is not going to sit idly by. Jesus is not going to just sit there and watch you in idolatry. He doesn't just twiddle his thumbs. He doesn't like think, boy, I really wish Kyle would get out of that. Jesus goes to war when we're in idolatry. Look at Exodus 34. I think this is interesting. 
Um, Exodus 34 says, you must not worship other gods, for the Lord, whose very name is Jealous, whose very name is Jealous, is a God who is jealous about his relationship with you. His very name is Jealous. Where's that, Julia, do we have that song? Where's the Jealous song, right? It's all like, he loves me, and he's nice, and he's kind, and he's great, and it's true. He's also, oh, there is that one, he is jealous for me, he loves like a hurricane, I'm like a tree. One song I can think of. One, one song. I've got one song. Um, we don't talk, God is jealous. I mean, God is not going to sit there and watch your affections be divvied out to the next Tom, Dick, or Harry idol that walks by. He goes to war. He gets suited up. He's ready to go. I mean, Jesus says in Revelation 2.16, this very letter, repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus goes to war. I mean, in his love for us, which is high and deep and broad and wide in his glory and his holiness, he will not tolerate idols in your life. And he'll wait. He's patient. He is not quick to anger. He will work with you. He will give you time, but eventually he's going to come and he's going to hack it off. And in Genesis 32, we call that wrestling. In John 15, we call that pruning. And in either case, it's ugly. And here's what happens is God cuts away relationships or jobs or opportunities or this, that, and the other, and we kind of weep and we cry over them. And what we don't recognize is that was God cutting away an idol. He's not going to play games. He don't mess. But not only does he kind of go to war, I mean, he gets suited up. It is like the Super Bowl for him. But he invites us to join in the process. And that's always what Jesus does, y'all. Like, it is never like a, it is never all on you, nor is it all on him. It is always this friendship with Jesus that is this back and forth interrelationship, which is how we kind of become more like Jesus, which is why scripture says in Philippians 2, um, work out your salvation, therefore, with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work to his good pleasure. This is a both and thing. It is both and. And so how do we participate in that? Three kind of reminders. I, I'm in a new season spiritually right now. Um, I feel like God is really kind of not letting me be busy so that we can just kind of be with each other right now. And it is drawing out all sorts of interesting in me. Because it turns out I'm most comfortable in goals and doing and the next thing. And right now I'm just being and I am a hot mess. Um, and... Um, in this season, the thing that I have felt challenged to do is wake up every morning and go to bed every night and just remind myself, often out loud, what is true of me. And so maybe these would be some things that would help you do that because there is power. I'm going to sound like one of those late-night Pentecostals. There is power to when we say, declare things over ourselves in the morning and, the night, and I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm stressed out and I kind of remind myself. So a few things to remind yourself of. And there is no idol. Idols can't give you any victory that Jesus hasn't already won. An idol can't give you a victory that Jesus hasn't already won. Look at these last verses. It kind of gives us a way out of idolatry, this verse 17. He says, anyone with ears to hear must listen and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden in heaven, and I will give to each one a white stone. And on that stone will be a name that only the person who has the name will understand it. Listen, there is no victory that an idol can give you that Jesus hasn't already won. Going to an idol for victory is like going to the Browns to learn how to play football. You're going to learn some things. You're not going to learn how to play football. Okay? Um, go Steelers. I, um, 
Idols can't give us a victory that Jesus has already won. Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And there is no victory an idol can give you that Jesus hasn't already achieved. An idol cannot give you victory financially or romantically or in terms of your connection or in the success of your job. I mean, an idol can't give you that. It'll promise it, but it'll lie. Ultimately, that's a victory that belongs to Jesus, and it's up to him how he's going to share that with you. Idols can't give us a victory that Jesus hasn't already won, and idols can't give us a name that Jesus hasn't already given us. I'm so glad we did the Here's My Heart, Lord. Good job. Um, Julia and I rarely talk about the songs that we're going to sing. I'll give her a theme, and maybe she'll say, does this work? And I'll say yes, and sometimes not even. And it's freaky-deaky how much there's overlap. Here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true. I am found. I am yours. I am loved. I am free. I am healed. I mean, what we go to these idols is we go trying to find a name and identity that they can't give us because it is Jesus who gives us a white stone with a new name. Fun fact, spoiler alert, Revelation 3, verse 12 says the name on the stone is Jesus. So we actually all get the same name. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Maybe it just makes it easier to count in heaven. Is Jesus here? We all raise our hand. But um, <laughs> there is no name. There is no name that an idol can give you that Jesus can't, hasn't already wanted to give you. So we go to idols to feel found. We go to idols to feel free. We go to idols to feel healed. We go to idols to feel whatever. And that's only something Jesus can give us. And then last but not least, um, and this is the part that I've been really treasuring today, is that there is manna for the middle. There's manna for the middle. He says, I will. hi, Zoe. Um, she's like, amen. Um, in the book of Numbers, Israel is on this journey, right? And, and every day from the clouds falls this bread, which is called manna, and they eat it, and it lets them journey. They journey like that for like 40 years. It's a very long time. And if they try to take more of the bread for tomorrow, the bread rots. There is manna for the middle, Like, y'all, I know we're in the middle. I know that the thing that you are praying for and seeking after and begging God for, like, is not here yet. And I know idols want to whisper in your ear and promise a shortcut there. They want to promise a back way. It's faster to go this way than that way. But let me tell you what Jesus says, I will give you enough for today. There's enough manna today for the middle. Jesus taught us to pray, give us today our daily bread. And, and it, there's not like, also, if you could give us some of tomorrow's, that'd be great too. It's just give us today our daily bread. And y'all, Jesus is himself our daily bread. Jesus is himself our daily bread. And I know the middle sucks. We've been in the middle for four years, and we're going to be in the middle after that. Because here's the other thing. When you get the thing you want, there's a new middle. There is no end, right? So you get the marriage, and the marriage is hard. You get the baby, and now they're up all night. I mean, it's, it's everything, right? The middle is always there. But Jesus shows up in the middle and says, I am enough. I am enough. I love that we get to take communion today. So let me pray and we're just going to jump into that. God, give us your grace. um, And in our middles, protect us. uh, In our middles, protect us from our ideals becoming our idols. God, we want to trust you with our lives. And so we pray that you um, would speak. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Today is the week of songs that I like. Um, We're going to sing a song right now that is what we would call my freshman year at Moody Bible Institute jam. Um, And the song that we sang, You're Beautiful, is the song that my wife walked down the aisle to at our wedding. Um, Because marriage is a picture of Jesus in the church.
and so um, we like that a lot, so we use that. Um, we take communion together or receive communion every week at Regen, um, and the way we do it is simple, is you'll come forward, we'll rip off a piece of the bread, so you'll dip it in the cup, and as we like to say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, at Regen, we practice an open table, which means if you have a pulse, you are welcome here. Uh, because Jesus offered himself once and for all for all of us. And so um, I'm going to have to do this without the mic because it's hard to do it with my hands. Chase worthless idols, forsake the joy that could be theirs, is what Jonah says. And so, um, man, I pray that whatever it is that you are worshiping that is not Jesus, that he would get all up in that. Um, he would get all up in your grill. And... Uh, that you would find true freedom, freedom and true joy on the other side of that. I just like love the snot out of you. I can't even stand it. Um, if you did not get a chance to take some eggs for our egg hunt, we have eggs with mustaches on them that need to be stuffed. So you just take the eggs, fill them with candy and bring them back. Um, one of us, maybe Lindsay, will be out there in a minute. So anyway, I love you so much. We'll see you next week.